Welcome to the Born and Raised Audio Experience. Presented by Onyx. kind of our quick rundown on our, we call it the blue collar elk hunting, um, kind of our, our tools of the trip, tools of the trade and what we do. So uh, the biggest thing is becoming proficient in the call, being comfortable in the call and having confidence. Uh, the key to elk hunting is confidence. And if, you, if you're doubting what's going on or questioning what's going on, that's going to lead you to be cautious, you're gonna have a fear of failure and you wanna eliminate that, that as much as possible. So trying to be confident in what's going on. Um, and what that comes down to for us is diaphragm calls. We use it 90% um, of the time, we're gonna cow call with it, we're gonna bugle with it and, and use a cow call or using a, a diaphragm call and getting proficient is something I would highly encourage. Um, it's a minimal investment. You can get a, a call for under 10 bucks and you can practice. The biggest thing is practice. A lot of people will pick up that call on opening day and haven't used it since last bow season and they're gonna practice the first time when they walk out to the first clear cut. And that's what I would highly discourage you to do. Um, there's a lot of calls on the market. There's a lot of great calls and a lot of great call manufacturers. Um, we, we personally, we build seven different calls and we have a, it kind of all depends on the shape of your mouth, how much air you blow, what's gonna work good for you. So a lot of people are like, what's the best one? Well, it totally depends on how you call and what your experience level is. Um, this year, honestly, I ran, it's our easy cow. It's kind of our middle of the road as far as thickness of latex and stretch. And that's the biggest difference between most calls is how thick the latex is and how tight it's stretched. If you have a thin latex and a light stretch, it's gonna be a real soft call, real easy to use and get going on it but it's not gonna be as loud. When you put more air to it, tendencies that call is gonna cut out. Um, if you have the thickest latex and the tightest stretch, it's gonna take more air, it's a little bit more difficult, but it can be the loudest. So that's something to kind of look at when you're buying calls, kind of pay attention to what, where they rank that uh, latex thickness and stretch. Um, I'll run through a couple different calls and a couple different sounds that those calls can produce and kind of describe what what I'm experiencing with them. Um, we'll start down in one of our lightest. This is the OTC. A little dirty, it's been in the call pouch since last season, but uh, it's gonna be the lightest cow. You can also bugle with this. It's just a little bit, it's not gonna be as loud as some of those thicker latex. And what I said there, I ran the easy cow most of the year. It's a real, it's kind of a middle of the road stretch, middle of the road thickness. Um, you can call, you can cow call soft with it, but you can also get pretty loud with it. Then we step up. Um, it's actually is 
about the same thickness as the Easy Cow. This is our September reed, but it's a tighter stretch. So you're gonna hear an octave higher in the cow call, but as I bugle with it, it also carries the volume with it, so. You can tell with that thicker stretch, I can put some more air across that and be a little bit louder. And then last but not least, this is our LOF reed. It's actually our thickest latex and the tightest stretch that we do. A little bit harder to run on a cow call, um, but it's also the loudest call. The other side of this call that I like is I can get where, uh, and we'll talk about this a little bit later on, the two-tone side of it. Um, and it's a low note and a high note. We use that a lot of times uh, when we're locate calling for elk, and it seems like that low note carries really far. So here's the LOF read. So that's kind of the rundown on the reads, some of the sounds we produce out of them. Next up, we're always having is a bugle tube with us. Um, you can always make a cow call with a reed, um, but if you don't have a bugle tube, your sound, you're just gonna be limiting how far you can make that tra sound travel. And with the, with the bugle tube, the sounds you can produce out of it, so locate bugle, lip ball, chuckle, challenge bugle, bark scream. I'll kind of run through those real quick and then kind of explain why we're using those and when we use them. So. Here's a locate bugle. Simple sound, just straight bugle. Um, the, the other one that we use out of that, like I said, is gonna be the two-tone, and that's where I'm gonna hold a low note and increase to a high note, and that low note, you kinda use the analogy like a train horn. You know, if you hear a car horn, high pitch, doesn't travel as far, you hear a train horn, you got that low note, that sound's gonna travel quite a bit. So here's the two-tone. And that, that's where that sound is really projecting out. We'll use that a lot when you're up on top of a ridge or it's windy out. Um, next sound, lip ball. That's uh, where you're gonna take that noise of that bugle and you're gonna purse your lips together, you're gonna get a buzz. So without a reed in the mouth, it's gonna sound like this. Basically, uh, as you put pressure to that tube, those, your lips vibrate and you're blowing a bugle with that and that's when you're gonna get that lip ball sound. So here's what a lip ball sounds like. You can hear that, a chuckle. That's kind of the sound. We, we always say it kind of separates the men from the boys when it comes to calling. You can, you, a guy can bugle really well. You go to hear a chuckle and it's like, that's Doug Flutie right over there. It, uh, you know, a lot of times what people aren't doing is they're not exchanging air with their diaphragm. They're gonna start and they just go, oh, you, 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 and ex exhale out. When you're chuckling, you have an exchange of air. You're going, I'm sucking in and out going, so you can hear that voice and really if once you get that chuckle down a lot of times you can make that chuckle last a long time if you're running out of air 
you're not bringing that air exchange in and out. So that's something to work on. So a chuckle's gonna be like this. And we also, the cadence is really what a thing to key in on that. When you hear a bull, uh, you notice how that, I almost had a sharp shrill note, a longer second note, and then got that back and forth, back and forth. Um, kind of pay attention to what you hear in nature. There's sometimes a bull is real long and drawn out, um, and sometimes it's a really fast, excited chuckle. You can kind of play off of that, what, what you're hearing and playing with it. The next sound to talk about is bark scream. This is kind of the, the last case scenario when I use in calling. I actually used it in 2020 down in New Mexico. Bull came in, he's behind some oak brush. I came to full draw, drew too early, the bull stopped, and I sat there for almost two minutes. When the bull stepped out, I was shaking so bad, I couldn't even pick my bow up to aim at him, and I collapsed. Bull saw me, took off. I immediately, he didn't, he didn't know what happened, he just saw motion. I barked at him, he, he went up, barked, I barked, screamed at him, and he, he was like, okay, that, that wasn't what I thought it was. It, it was basically when a bull barks at you, he's saying, expose yourself. I, I've come as far as I want, or I'm not quite sure what's going on. When you bark back at him, it's like, nope, I'm here, here I am, and all of a sudden things can get back. So. You'll use a bark chuckle or a bark scream. And there's a bark chuckle right here. A lot of times when they do that, it's that excited side of it. Um, that bark note really though can, can change the, the deal. As far as external cow calls, um, everyone's asked about the new cow call. It'll be out. Uh, we used it this last year, our little bite blow. Um, that's going to be a tool that we're going to really rely on a lot of times. It's one of the most realistic sounding cow calls that we've, we've been able to. We also use the external. Uh, typically, I run the sound bite. It's estrus. When you're calling elk, they come in to fight or to breed. Using a cow call, they're coming into a cow sound to, to breed. So that sound where you can't really do it with a mouth read as well, you get that whine sound out of it. And that's what this is gonna sound like. So that's that estrus sound. So now we have kind of all the tools. We'll talk about how we actually put these into play. The cat road shuffle. So for us, we talk about volume is the key for responding. Um, we used to think that the high note on the bugle is, is the way to go about it. And we've kind of found that that high note, the sound just doesn't travel as far. We used to just reach for the high note, shut it down. Now we really strive for that two-tone note, so that low train horn sound carried up into the second octave. Um, and also, too, a, a, a lot of times when we're running through trying to locate, we're going to start soft. You don't want to come up to an area and come in and scream, challenge bugle, and hope that a bull's gonna respond, right? You gotta kinda paint a picture of what's going on. And we're kinda basically trying to get that, if there's something close, I wanna hear him respond. I don't necessarily wanna show my whole deck of cards. So I'm gonna start with a soft cow call, build up, use the external, and then go into a locate bugle, then maybe into a bull bugle with a chuckle. So just kinda, let that play out a little bit. And a lot of times when we're calling, we're 
I got the question, how often do you guys call? That is all dictated by what the terrain is like. If it's super thick, we're gonna call a lot more because your sound isn't getting out as far. If you're down in the bottom, you don't, generally we try not to locate from the bottom because your sound's not gonna carry up and those elk aren't gonna hear you or you're not gonna hear the elk. So um, a lot of times if we're on the coast, we're on a cat road hiking or on bikes, and we come down on a finger ridge and we're in a draw, we're gonna call right here in the head of the draw. And if it's 200 yards to the end of the finger, road, finger ridge where the, the road turns, we're gonna call halfway about 100 yards. And then we get out to the point, we'll try again. And a lot of times it's not until we get around the point and our bugle sounds off the canyon that the bull responded here down in the bottom back to the right. We're over east or, or in Colorado, that bugle travels a long ways. We might not call for four or 500 yards as we're hiking through. So it kind of all dictates on how much your sound is traveling and, and what, it, what it is terrain-wise. The, the big thing is, right, is dissecting the terrain. Um, whether you're gonna use a truck, whether you're gonna use a bicycle, your boots, or on horseback, uh, what you're really kind of looking for is what's the most efficient way that I can cover the terrain that I'm hunting. Um, you want to use ridges. Um, you don't want to be down in the bottoms a lot of times just because your sound's not going to travel that far. So pull out Onyx, kind of get a plan for the day here. If I want to end up in a destination over there, how am I going to get there most efficiently where you're going to expend the least amount, least amount of calories but cover the ground most efficiently? That's kind of the attack plan that we do. So a lot of times we're going to run down ridges, but we'll instead of just staying on top of the ridge, first part of the morning, we might peel down on the right-hand side of the ridge, drop halfway down, drop 500 feet in elevation, cruise back up, middle of the ridge, drop down the other side, and kind of work that ridge in that way. There we go. Here to rescue. Oh, sorry, guys. Hey, Garth Brooks. Garth Brooks. It's Britney Spears with oh, the headset. Yeah. We just scored Wyatt's buck from this year. Anyway, and I had I wanted to be over there when it was done just to see how it all went. Almost 120 inch Holy fork and horn. Fork and yeah. horn. Yes, monster. Fork and horn. Monster. Yeah, yes. black tail. Yes. Not, 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 not mine, not mine. It was Wyatt's, <laughs> but Wyatt's sick at home, so he couldn't make it. So um, anyway, yeah, I don't want to interrupt. Yeah, so. You can take it from here, Trent. Yeah, no. I will. I will. <laughs> no, no. Where are we at? Uh, we'll, we'll talk through here. So we're talking about dissecting the topography using the advantage. Rocky Mountain versus Roosevelt. We get a lot of questions. What's the difference? Rocky Mountains move a lot more. They're, they're typical. Sometimes from where they're feed to where they're bedding can be six to eight miles in one day. We've watched it. They come from the center pivots and they go eight miles up in the mountains. Roosevelt's may not do that in a week. They, you know, a lot of times they're going to live in a half mile, you know, general draw basin until they're bumped out of there. So um, the, the big thing on, on calling elk on Rockies, they just move a lot. So you get behind a bull and a, a herd of elk uh, on Rocky Mountains in the morning, chances are you're going to have a tough time keeping up with them. Where Roosevelt, they might take, grow from the clear cut and they might just wrap 200 yards in the timber and bed down there. So. And sometimes they'll live their whole lives. I mean, Roosevelt's within a, just a few square miles, Roosevelt's will, whereas Rockies, due to snow and everything in the, in the wintertime and stuff, they'll migrate a lot of times. So those Roosevelt's, they know that area really, really well. Yeah. Um, the big thing on weather for us, 
I'd rather have it 80 degrees and sunny during the day than 40 degrees and pouring down rain or snow uh, during, during September. You know where they're gonna be at when it's hot out. Um, their activity is minimal. So the big thing, when they're on their feet all day, it's kind of tough to pin them down what's going on and where they are. They're gonna be at a north slope on a, on a hot sunny day on a nice bench. And that's like our, we, our ideal time to call them in is that midday madness. So you kind of predict a little bit more on the movements of what's going on. You get the response, now what, right? That's the, uh, we talked, at, we had a podcast this morning. It was really interesting. It's, we talked about the fear of screwing up, right? Fear of failure, yeah. Fear of failure and like doing, not, I, I won't say screwing up, because just hearing an elk is unbelievable. And that's, if that's a feat that you're going after and you get to hear a bugle, it's awesome. But what do you do next? And a lot of people will sit back and be like, well, I didn't do anything because I didn't want to screw it up, you know? Um, that, that, you have to be willing to fail. That's what every time like calling, there's no exact way to do it. There's no, there's, there's no playbook. Well, there is a playbook that we use, but there's no exact way to do it. No, and I think you hear a bull bugle and get a response, like celebrate that. That's a win right there. You know, if you haven't ever had a bull and had an interaction, like you fooled that elk into thinking that you were real. That's cool. Next thing, pull out Onyx, mark a pin. Where is that thing at? Pinpoint it down. A lot of times it's like, we're, we're arguing. It's like, no, he's down here. No, he's down here. Figure out where he is. And if it's gonna take some extra time and try to get a second location on him, take that time before hear a bugle and take off running after it. Kind of really take the map out, figure out a plan of approach of how you're gonna do it. If you're calling with a partner as well, like don't just go like this and have, you know, me bugle, we're at the same spot, right? Send Cody over on this side of the ridge. I'll stay on the ridge top or something of that nature. That way he has a whole different feel, whole different hearing zone of where it might come from. So you can really pinpoint, okay, it was over here and he thinks it was like over here. Really pinpoint that in. And then like Cody said, get on your maps. What's over there? Why, is there a little bench that he's on? Is, what, what, what's, what's down there, you know? Yeah, and then time of day, right, is what's going on. Like hunting Rockies, like I said, you're, they're gonna be most vocal early morning they've they've been up on their feet they're they're tending the cows they're bugling saying here i am i've got my cows but they're on their move and and that's the hard part it's like a lot of people want to just try to go set up on those elk and they're like oh he just took his cows and pushed them away no what's happening is they're going to bed they don't care about doug flutie behind them they're just going to bed so the biggest thing that we strive for is just to stay in earshot that in that morning into mid-morning until they bed down so we can pinpoint where they were headed. Yeah, and all of it. Thermals makes a big difference. Where your wind's at, um, what are they doing at the time? And then that rolls over into just you're hearing that response. So you're seeing, we, we call it taking the bull's temperature. Is he just screaming hot, trying to tend cows right where he's at? like ready to fight what what is his temperature how is he raking a tree is he that mad to where i need to start raking a tree kind of taking taking the pulse on him did it take maybe three bugles to get him to bugle one time every bull has uh temperature i would say yeah exactly and every bull would be like okay uh he only responds every time i chuckle so i'm gonna keep chuckling a lot you're gonna push every single button of his that he doesn't want to hear at the time to make him close that distance towards you. 
So we kind of talked through this, the uh, thermals, figuring out what the train is, what time of day. They're like, if it's that mid-morning, it's 8.30, 9 o'clock, chances are you're going to want to slow play this one. That, that you're, you're running that time, the danger zone of when you're going to run out of those morning thermals coming down the mountain versus that mid midday and the afternoon thermals coming up. Um, case in point, like this year in, in Idaho, we had a bull going. He was fired up. He was bugling a bunch, and we could have slipped in there, but the wind was just like back and forth, back and forth. We sat down for an hour and a half. He shut up. Steve was wondering, like, what the heck are we going to do? We slipped around to the top, and in five minutes, an hour and a half later, he was in our laps. And so we just waited for the conditions to be right. Like, the hardest thing is finding elk. It's not hunting them. It's like 80%, 90% is just trying to find elk. So... Um, we talk a lot about, so we, we hunt as a group. We hunt as a big, uh, usually sometimes five, six deep. And uh, we honestly try to sound mimic the herd of an elk. So when we're going places, when we're moving, we're stepping on limbs. We're, elk are huge. They're big animals. And they, they, yes, they can sometimes tiptoe around, but generally they are making a lot of noise. So we're going to try to mimic that. And But with our collar situation, we like to have our collars back and... We don't have a distance, I would say. Like, there's no perfect um, distance for your collar behind the shooter. When we're in Roosevelt country, there's a lot of times that the collar is this far from the shooter, a lot of times. And the main reason is that is the communication level. So if I'm calling and Cody's shooting, he's going to be having signs behind his back of, okay, go this way or go that way. Or he's gonna be saying bugle because maybe he can see something that I can't see. Or maybe he's going to say, "We have this is cow call if he does that. So you have signs and stuff with your shooter and caller. If you do have a partner situation that you can jump in and say, okay, I know exactly what his next movement is going to be. Yep. Um, and the big thing is trying to figure out how far are you from the elk. And that's, that's the hardest key, especially in thick terrain, is like how far is that sound traveling? Is that bull bugling quiet? Like there's times that a, a bull will... I've seen them bugle at 40 yards and it sounds like they're 200 yards away. They, they, they can control that volume. So a lot of times it's kind of hard to read that, figure out on the map terrain wise. Yep. He's in this, he's on this bench. He's not right down there in the, in the cliffed out stuff. He's in the bench trying to pinpoint that. Um, and then topography is going to dictate the strategy. Like he said about collar distance, if it's wide open, there'll be times that we're going to be set up. Uh, like your bull this year, Strand was back 150, 200 yards from him calling from where that bull was. Because there's a comfort zone with those elk. They're going to go as far as they can see. And they can, if they can pinpoint where that sound is, that's where they're going to stop. So if it's 200 yards away, he's going to hang up at 200 yards. So you got to kind of use that. And if it's in thick terrain, he's going to can only see 20 yards. He's going to come to 20 yards. So We talked about that fear of failure. Um, you can move to the next word. We've talked about the fear of failure too, guys, already. Do something. Do, even if you think, oh man, I screwed it up, at least you have a chance, right? Yep. So the setup really is, is what we always try to figure out is like, okay, what, what direction is the wind blowing? Where's that elk? And how is he going to approach the call? So as a shooter, if the wind, we got wind in our face or kind of say quartered off to my right right here, Chances are that bull is going to make a circle to the left from that straight line if he's right in front of us. So instead of being in the straight line zero, that's why I'm going to slide off as a shooter, slide downwind from the approach to where the collar is. And as that bull comes around to circle for the wind, that's when you can get him shot. 
Yeah. We call the arc. Yeah. The arc, topography. We touched on that a little bit ago. Uh, and then we also talked about like thick versus open terrain and stuff. So, like I said, sometimes I'll be this far from the shooter. Sometimes I'll be back a long ways. And this is where the big hand signals come in because I'm relying everything on that shooter, what he's telling me. There's been so many times that bull goes to rake in a tree. And a lot of times you're going to want to mimic that, try to make him upset. And anyway, so Cody, he'll go start raking, you know, start making some more noise, start being more, you know, realistic to what he's doing. Um, and the, the number one question is like where this all falls apart is where you set up. Like that, that is like the number one failure most of the time is guys aren't comfortable being out in the open. They're going to see a tree and they're going to stand behind the tree. And, you know, as the elk comes, they're going to, you know, think that they're going to step out. Have confidence in your camouflage. The biggest thing is being in the shadows. If, if you can get off of the side of the tree where you're in the shadows, you want to be dark. You don't want to be highlighted by the sun. So that's the number one thing. Stand in front of the cover. You don't want to have to shoot through any branches. You want to be out in the open side of it. And pick a good spot with shooting lanes that, okay, if that bull's coming head on, I've got a shot that he's going to come through here. If he's going to slip to the downwind side, I can shoot him over here at 25 yards. And as you come into that, it's like, how far can I shoot down this? How far can I shoot? If it's too thick or you need to make an adjustment, make an adjustment earlier than stand here and be like, well, I don't, man, if you, I don't know what, make a movement, make a decision and trust your gut on it. Yeah. And another thing too, set up, like Cody said, is one of the biggest things. So once you do take that time, don't, don't just be like, this is good enough. And okay. Take that time to go. Okay. Maybe just. 15 yards over there, there's some intersecting trails where I have long shooting lanes. So go over there and really look at the situation. A lot of times you'll have more time than you think um, before he's just right on top of you. So kind of gauge the bull, see where he's at, and then get in a good spot. Like Cody said, range your spots. You don't ever want to see him coming in and go, oh no, I didn't range, how far is that? You want to checklist these boxes as they come through to where you go through, you clear out all the limbs, kick out everything, so you're super silent. So if you have to see, okay, he's coming out in front of me, I need to pivot just a little bit. I'm not gonna break a bunch of limbs doing that or make a bunch of disturbance. Another thing is just your range. It's, you already know the range. So the one thing's about confidence. If I feel good, I've shot this shot a thousand times in the backyard at my archery target. I'm gonna just turn. I already know it's 30 yards. I've anchored a ton of times check all those boxes off in practice to where it's just second nature. When you draw on that bull, you already pick a spot and then send the arrow. And so you're not just freaking out more than you're already freaking out. Cause at the time of the shot, yeah. you, you, know, you want to be able to go on controlled autopilot, not autopilot, but controlled. You, yeah. you, you have a program, you grip your bow the same way every time. You know exactly how you anchor. You, you want to go through that. Um, and clearing limbs, too, is like if you're up next to a tree and you got kind of a shadow, you need to break a limb, break a limb. Don't be afraid. Because that arm's going to come back. So if yeah. you got a limb or something, break it off. Or we've had a lot of times like a, a branch is hanging on your pack, touching your pack, and as you move, you can hear it. Break that off because that might make the difference if you need to pivot to move and all of a sudden that limb breaks or, or makes noise and that bull pinpoints that, that sound. Uh, take care of it early. Yeah, we've, I mean, calling side of it, we've talked about it. It's, it's a dance, right? We, you start and, and you're going to play on the emotions of that bull. 
Um, everyone asks, how do you do it? it? Everyone's a little bit different. And I, there's not, in my opinion, there's not a, a formula that you can say, do this. If he does this, you do that. Um, it's just kind of experience time in the woods. Um, make notes when something falls apart and it, you know, like, how did I screw this up? Did I make this certain sound and he shut up? Did he win me? Anything like that. And just journal what, what you learned throughout the day. And that's the best process to go back and, and figure out what your mistakes were. Um, the biggest thing, and, and I talked about this in the turkey seminar earlier, is like curiosity killed the bull. You get him super excited. Like I said, you're playing on emotion. He's either coming in to fight you or he's coming in to breed you. Those are the only two reasons that elk's coming in. That curiosity side of it, it's like, if you get him mad, he's coming, shut up, be quiet, let the bull come in on that. A lot of times if you keep calling, keep calling, he's gonna stand his ground and be like, no, come here. But if you shut up, it's like, where did he go? I wanna see what's going on. A lot of times that's how you can get him killed. So. That's the big one, when to draw your bow, right? When do I draw? I've heard it a ton of times of people saying, well, I, 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 I drew too early, I had to hold too long. In our opinion, drawing earlier is better than drawing late. If you miss your opportunity and he's already, he, elk are so in tune to what's going on from probably four or 500 yards, I'll bet he could tell within 10 feet of where you're standing. They are that, that pinpointable. So they come in, they know already exactly where you are or your caller is. So they're actually already in tune to that spot. And so any more movement that you can try to not get away with is better. So that's why we always say draw early if you can. And it's helped us a ton. There's certain things like I've seen Trevor draw and like lock his bow arm out before just to stay and draw. Cody last year drew on that big bull on the booth over there for how long? It's like a minute 40, I think. It's a long time. So in your, in your practice as well, practice drawing on a target and sitting there and seeing how long you can hold it and still pull off the shot and without, you know, falling apart. So it's stuff that you can work on at home as well. And then, you know, it's angle and distance, right? We, we talk about the frontal shot. We've, we've had a lot of success with it. It's not for everyone. If you're a novice elk hunter, I wouldn't encourage you to shoot an elk frontal. You don't know the anatomy of the elk. You haven't been intimate around to understand what that is. Um, you know, look for a good, clean, kilt, ethical shot that you have confidence in. So uh, highly discourage just winging an arrow and hoping to get one in there. So that's all about the summertime practice. When you draw your bow back, you should have the confidence, I'm gonna place the arrow exactly where I need to and make a good, clean shot. As hunters, I think we get into a mode, I think, um, talk to a lot of people and they say, man, I, I, I didn't kill an elk for five years, but now I've killed one every single year after. And you, I think as a hunter, I think we get into that mode where it's like, you've already experienced and got over the first kill or the second kill. Pretty soon it starts becoming a habit and you start to do it regularly. And you get into that mode, I think, as a hunter to where it's like, I'm, I know what needs to happen. I know the steps that I need to go through to get this thing done. And, and you do that and, and it will happen. I promise you it will. Yep. And then a lot of times you'll hear us call after the shot. People are like, why do you do that? Well, a lot of times they don't know what happened. They all of a sudden feel like they got stung by the big yellow jacket nest. They, you know, they, something zips through them. They, they're startled by the sound of it, sight of it, but you, they were coming in to fight an elk or, or breed a cow. So we call 
calm them down. A lot of times that just helps on the blood trail side of life. They're gonna stop, stand there, and a lot of times the move stood there and they're pumping blood, and next thing you know, blacked out, done deal. So we call after the shot a lot of times just to reaffirm that there's an elk there and, and the hope in the blood trail is gonna shorten that, so. Tracking and meat care, the most important thing. You've done a lot of time practicing and shooting in your backyard or wherever, all the archery shoots, all the money that's went into this thing, the, the wife getting terribly mad at you, whatever it may be, and you, this is your due diligence part. So this is the part where your woodsmanship skills kind of come into play. And as far as goes from reading your arrow, right? I mean, yep. right off the bat, try to find your arrow. First, right off the bat, back out, collect your thoughts. Don't do anything. Don't go up to the spot where you shot from. Sit back and say, okay, what just happened? All right, was he broadside? Was he quartering more than I thought that he was quartering when I made the shot? Was whatever happened? We have the advantage of having a camera that we'll go back through and we will take a long period of time framing it, framing it, framing it by frame by frame to, to see exactly where that arrow hit, to see exactly the angle of that animal. A lot of people don't have that advantage. And so really try and remember and talk with your buddy right off the bat. Yeah. Say, hey, he comes up, what happened, what happened? Okay, the bull was this. I shot him at for 35 yards. He was right there at that tree. I thought the arrow hit a little high or I thought whatever, you know? I heard a loud crack or I heard there that hollow pumpkin sound. You can kind of put, it's, it's, it's all a puzzle piece at that point after that arrow is let go. Um, and then too, um, daylight versus dark, weather, that's all gonna dictate how long, you know, if, if you feel like you double lunged it, you saw him running away, you saw blood coming out both sides, that's a dead bull in, in seconds. Give it an hour, start tracking. If you like, man, he was kind of slightly quarter two, I think I hit him further back. I don't, I didn't see an arrow off the opposite side. That, that bull, you know, maybe a one lung liver or gut, that's a six to eight hour wake before we're gonna start tracking. Um, and and the, the weather dictation is gonna maybe increase that. Like if it's snowing or raining, you're gonna have, you, you, you gotta gather as much intel as you can at the moment. But the horror stories that I hear is, yeah, I shot it, shot looked good. Um, I gave it about five minutes. I walked up there. I made it 150 yards. The bull jumped up, and we never saw him again. It, so you got to give that time. If, if, if it's not a perfect double lung shot and you didn't hear him going down, the minimum is an hour that we used, we will we'll wait. So as you saw some of our videos this year, there was some, um, if you watched my hunt, unfortunately, that shot was not where I wanted the shot to be, right? And right off the bat, we start tracks. We start on X tracks just to see and record every single place that we went to look for this thing. And then you take the big picture. We all got together and we're like, okay, I've been over here. You've been over here. Let's put this puzzle together and see if we can figure this out, which we ended up doing. Thank God. But um, yeah, start your tracks, go slow. Don't run after it. Don't I mean, your elk is gonna be just fine if you find him 10 minutes from you shooting to find him five hours after you shot. He's going yeah. to be still fine. So and, do, your, do and, your due diligence. And too, a lot of times, like you shoot a bull and your buddy is stoked, right? He's out charging out this, next thing you know, he ruins all the evidence that you have on the blood trail. Like the person, you have a guy stand at last blood. Next guy, go forward. Hey, you got blood, okay, come up. There's one guy that's kind of leading the charge on that. If he's struggling, that's when you can bring up assistance, but don't just keep 
charging down the trail because a lot of times you can knock the blood off, you can kick over a stick that had blood on it. All those are signs. Um, you know, the biggest thing, it's really tough tracking in this like second growth cover. It's all pine needles. It's really hard if they're not running to track blood. So you got to look for broken sticks. If you come up on a duffy white log, those are those points. Uh, if you're in the ferns and it's got a broken fern, you can, there may not be blood on it, but you can see, okay, hey, an animal went down here. So you really, that's where you got to slow things down and take it piece by piece. And then once you find your animal, congratulations, by the way, uh, you get to where meat care. That's when it's, that's number one priority, meat care. So that will be, okay, what's the temperature outside? How far am I packed in here? How long is it gonna take me to get this thing out of here? That's why we made those meat bags is because you put those in the meat bags, everything's good. Flies, that's a huge thing. Maggots with the flies will lay eggs on your meat as soon as they get to it. So taking care of that meat that you've worked your butt off for that's gonna feed your family for a whole year is it's number one priority. Yeah, so we use the gutless method. It's the cleanest, most efficient way to take care of an elk. We've made videos on it. Um, it, it, it really, you can take care of, we can take care of an elk pretty, if we're quick on it, 45 minutes from start to finish. You're gonna take care of all four quarters, get the hamburger meat, neck meat, tenderloins, back straps off of it. And uh, it's, it's really a pretty efficient way, so. We've got videos on that too online. If you look it up, we've got a lot of videos down that. So. so, and the pack out, like it's the hardest part, but it's like the most enjoyable pain you'll have in an elk hunt, you know? Take your time, enjoy it. Um, you know, a lot of people say, oh, I killed the bull, it's 80 degrees out, it's gonna spoil. You, you have some time there, take care of the meat, get it to locker to town as quick as you can in that case, but you have a window of time uh, of taking care of it. The thing to not do is take hot meat, throw it in a cooler, go back to camp, have a beer. Like that's the time where that, that meat you gotta get, you want it when you hang it, you want it in the shade, you want an airflow on it. Those are the two things you wanna get that protective layer and uh, usually after the first night, most of the time in archery, if you can get that temperature under 40 degrees at night, that meat's gonna be good for a while. I, I was in Idaho this year, we had never got frozen, but I hung that bull for nine days over there, eight days over there, and it was totally fine during September, so.